All right. Welcome, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. This may be a long podcast, so we're going to get right into this. This is Big John, joined tonight by my tag team partner, Doc. We are going to continue our book review series with Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future by Newt Gingrich. And we're in chapter two, for those of you reading along. This one's called Danger and Opportunity. But first, let me say hello to Doc. It's been a while. What's happening, bud? Well, can you hear me okay? I hear you good. Well, you know, I apologize to the loyal listeners for taking an extended hiatus here. Uh, Our last podcast on our old-fashioned book club, uh, I think, took about seven days to complete. (laughs) So we needed some time off, but we hope to get through tonight uh, Chapter 2, which will be about uh, 25, 30 pages. A lot of heavy, in-depth conversations here from Newt Gingrich's uh, number one New York Times bestseller, Saving America's Future, Defeating Big Government Socialism. And what I would say, as I have said in our other episodes, this isn't necessarily about hearing things you agree with and being an echo chamber, uh, but it's about making you think and constructing an argument and defending your position more than anything else. I I think I can speak for my tag team partner here that we would agree with most of what Newt Gingrich is saying uh, in this book and how important it is to defeat big government socialism. But more importantly for the people listening that may not agree with us, uh, to give you an opportunity to hear another side of things and contemplate uh, your views. question what were you saying um it wasn't necessarily a question as it was just encouraging people to not just agree with what they hear but to think about what they hear and to analyze what they hear and come up with pros and cons uh think for themselves use your human agency yeah definitely we've got to think uh, about what's going on in America, uh, learn from, from other mistakes, and move forward. So uh, I'm ready to yeah, get into this. Is an old fashioned. Yeah, oh, this is an. And I just want everyone. I want everyone to know this isn't a lecture, right? This is an old fashioned book club where we sit down and we read it, and uh, it's no holds barred. If somebody has a thought that comes to mind about what they're hearing, Big John or I, we just stop and we talk about it. And so hopefully you'll find that entertaining. So with that, John, are you ready? I'm ready, man. This is a great book. Chapter 2, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, Danger and Opportunity by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. 
The greatest challenge of the elections of 2022 and 2024 and 2026 is for a majority of Americans to develop a replacement program capable of overmatching the threats we face from big government socialism. Note that I didn't say Republicans. I said a majority of Americans. Now, what, what do you think he means right there? Is he recognizing something, John, that we've talked about on our podcast over, you know, the last uh, decade and a half, that it isn't necessarily Republican partisan politics that's the clarion call to saving the country? Uh, because the Republican Party has really let people down uh, and has ignored a lot of people. Trump has come in and filled that gap. But more than that, he's exposed the two-party systems as really being a one-party system. And we can't depend on Democrats or Republicans to overmatch the threats we face from big government socialism, that it really has to be a majority of Americans, that if we're going to beat this back, it can't be partisan. It has to be nonpartisan. I'm not even saying bipartisan, because there's no such thing anymore in Washington uh, it's nonpartisan, and it's average ordinary people from regular parts of this country coming together in a nonpartisan way to beat this deep state, administrative state, big government socialist state back. I think opening this up, uh, as he did here, is very insightful. Uh, populism over partisanship. Uh, I was watching uh, Jimmy Dore the other day, and he was saying, you know, the far left and the have found some things they agree on, and now it's time for them to get together and get things done. They do that. That's another story. But, you know, it's not really a, a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a meet in the middle. You know, the majority of Americans are in the middle. You have this 20 or 10% on the far right, 10 on the far left, and then 80% are kind of in the middle, but you know, probably lean a little bit right. Uh, and that's where we got to meet. That 80% needs to stop watching Fox and stop watching CNN and think for themselves and come together. Speaker Gingrich continues, I include all three election cycles because we have to win all three to overcome and totally defeat the forces that are endangering our nation. This book is about defeating big government socialism and its allied destroyers of freedom. It is about defeating and replacing a set of century-old ideas that have proven to be disastrous for America. It is about, and I'll tell you what, the, the cancer that is on this country right now was set about, uh, some will try to get technical and say Woodrow Wilson, certainly I believe Wilson introduced uh, progressivism on a national stage, uh, but it's really Franklin Roosevelt unleashed the cancer that we are dealing with today on big government socialism in the halls of our government and our society through the New Deal, which was a total and complete failure. Uh, it, it took other things to get us out of the mess we were in, and, and arguably 
uh, prolonged the mess that we were in by complicating things. Uh, but these are century-old ideas that have proven to be disastrous for America. It is about breaking this book, the cronyism and corruption that now infect our system like a rapidly spreading cancer. And he's using the word cancer, I'm using the word cancer, but he's also talking about crony capitalism here. Corrupt crony capitalism. It, it isn't the system. It isn't the, the device that has caused the problem uh, in our country. It, it is, in a sense, crooked deals and, partner, and crooked partnerships with private interest and government that has created the problems that we have today. Uh, the speaker continues, again, let me be clear, this is not about defeating Democrats. It is not about simply electing Republicans. It is about ending the system that has dominated American politics and government for nearly a century. Today, And this is what Trump stands for. Uh, Trump stands for defeating the system. And uh, those who get defeated by it, uh, their partisan persuasion is uh, of no consequence. And that's what scares a lot of people in Washington. Uh, populism, populist nationalism, participatory democracy, that has always scared uh, the elite in this country. And what uh, Gingrich is highlighting and what Donald Trump stands for is anathema to um, those powers. Now, the flip side would be, is why in the hell are you trying to bust up the system? Life is good. Even life is good. Life is good for us. And life is good for even those who don't think life is good. And what are you replacing it with? Uh, there's a lot of different ways you could think about this. Uh, and, and this is the great debate. And it is trans, it, it has to uh, transcend partisanship. The speaker continues. Today, Americans face threats chillingly similar to those that were described by Orwell in 1984 in his other anti-totalitarian novel, Animal Farm. The American ideals of free speech, conscience, and freedom within the rule of law are being challenged by a totalitarian mentality of growing power and fanaticism. People now find themselves compelled to publicly apologize for using the wrong words or having the wrong thoughts. It is like a contemporary recreation of Mao Zedong's public confession groups and struggle sessions, I'll add, from his brutal cultural revolution in China. People can be canceled and fired from their jobs. They can be forced to avoid public places. They can be coerced to submit their bodies to the dictates of a corrupt, crony-ridden system of power. Thinking, saying, or doing the wrong thing can lead to an, an ostracism and exclusion. And basically what he's talking about here is you have to live the lie. You have to accept the lie. You don't even have to recognize it. You just have to live with it. And if you don't live with the lie, if you go against the lies, you will be memory hold. The largest communication system on the planet now aggregate to themselves the ability to erase people and institutions. In the interest of influencing an election, the fourth largest newspaper in America and the oldest can be silenced for telling the truth about Hunter Biden's corrupt ties to China, Russia, Ukraine, 
in other foreign countries. A president of the United States can be regularly silenced for saying things that are unpopular with half of the country, but acceptable to the half that supports him. We are faced with crisis of culture, bureaucracy, cronyism, and corruption. I want you to, I want everybody to hear that. We are faced with crisis of culture, bureaucracy, cronyism, and corruption. And the, and the trick will be as to how do we inculcate a democracy suppository inside of those crevices of the bureaucracy, the culture, the cronyism, and the corruption in order to reverse it. And if we do not solve these crises, we may be forced with the collapse, faced with the collapse of America as we have known it. For instance, there is a real possibility that the current American bureaucracies and policies will be unable to meet the foreign and domestic challenges that are endangering the survival of our constitutional system of freedom within the rule of law. I mean this literally. We are in danger of defeat by China. We are in danger of cat catastrophic damage from North Korea, Iran, Russia, Islamist terrorism, or any combination of them. Our national security system is incapable of evolving to meet threats as rapidly as they are growing. Our politicians seem incapable of executing the investigations and policy changes necessary. Our news media is uninterested in upholding our rights and is indeed more interested in upholding political narratives. Now, one thing I'll say to this, John, is how in the hell could our uh, national security system be incapable of meeting these threats against China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, et cetera, when we spend, how much money have we spent to fortify ourselves from these threats? Where the hell is the money gone? Well, yeah, I think uh, maybe uh, money is mismanaged at some level. Um, also, you know, we have we prepared to fight the correct type of war? Uh, have we invested too much in aircraft carriers that may be an obsolete way of battle? Or uh, should we have invested more in cyber? You know, should we have invested more in drones? Uh, it, a lot of things, you know, you, sometimes you get too much information. And it's hard to say why we may be outgunned by China. It could very well be an intellectual battle that we lose with China. And not necessarily the military battle, but the, the battle of who can hack and who can uh, take down the other side's uh, infrastructure uh, electronically and digitally. Speaker Gingrich continues, the combined systems of big government socialism, woke ideological destructiveness, cronyism, corruption, and a big business hyperarch collaboration to appease China and impose radical values and policies on America must be overcome and replaced for the United States to survive as a free country. That's a pretty, that's a thesis statement right there, right? You know, page 39, second paragraph of this book. That is the thesis statement of the book, at least thus far. And, and I think that'll be a theme you hear over and over again. And I'm going to read it one more time. 
the combined systems of big government socialism, woke ideological destructiveness, cronyism, corruption, and a big business hyper-rich collaboration to appease China and impose radical values and policies on America must be overcome and replaced for the United States to survive as a free country. Full stop. Just let that sink in. This all has to be reversed, according to Newt Gingrich, if we're going to survive. We cannot survive covering this up any longer. And it has to be unraveled in the next three successive elections. This midterm, the presidential, and the midterm following that. I have on my wall a Solidarity Labor Union poster given to Callista and me when we made a 2010 film about St. John Paul II's pilgrimage to Poland in 1979. The poster says in Polish, for Poland to remain Poland, two plus two must always equal four. This simple phrase was a repudiation of the language relativism by which the communist dictatorship in George Orwell's 1984 defined reality and forced people to memorize the state's version of facts. Remember how I said earlier, a lie, you must live the lie? Well, we're getting at it here. The state's version of facts, even if they were demonstrably not true, such as two plus two equals five. Until the last few years, I never fully appreciated the brilliant simplicity of asserting that two plus two must always equal four as an antidote to the cancer of totalitarian movements now I understand why Albert Camus, himself a rebel of great courage, wrote, quote, There always comes a time in history when the person who dares to say that two plus two equals four is punished by death. And the issue is not what reward or what punishment will be the outcome of that reasoning. The issue is simply whether or not two plus two equals four. If we are to survive, we must get back to a rational country that operates on a basis of objective truth and morality. Otherwise, America will perish. Reversing Roosevelt. Ooh, I think we're probably getting at what I was alluding to at the top of the broadcast. The revolution led by Franklin Delano Roosevelt is now in its, 19th, its 90th year, starting with the victory over Republican President Herbert Hoover in 1932. The financial redistribution bureaucratic model of government dominating society and Washington dominating government has been steadily at work for nine decades. Each decade has seen government grow bigger, more central to defining life and facing problems, more bureaucratic and more based on increasing power in Washington. Republicans have been the cheaper, more cautious managers of the Rooseveltarian revolution, but the steady shift in power in philosophy has gone through both Democrat and Republican political victories. I want to stop right there for a second. Because this is something that I've said for about 20 years or so, even before it became apparent that the uh, two-party system is really the uniparty system. The difference between on the Republican side of the aisle between conservatives and establishment mainstream Republicans is that conservatives want to repeal, roll back, and get rid of excessive government that goes beyond the consent of the governed and the Constitution. And mainstream Republicans simply want to manage what's left. 
Now, obviously, on the left and in the Democrat Party, they're all about increasing it, increasing the size and scope of government. And the difference is on the various degrees of how fast they get there. I want you to keep that in mind, because what Speaker Gingrich is saying here is exactly what I had been saying for a long time. The steady shift in power and philosophy has gone on through both Democrats and Republican political victories. It is about who managed. There are Republicans who are simply happy to manage what they have been given the opportunity to rule over. They're not talking about big ideas or solutions to big problems. It's just managing what they inherit from the occasional electoral victory. Gingrich continues, the speed has changed from time to time, but the direction has remained constant. And let me just add, this is the big fight right now. The de- there's, 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 little div- there's little diversion on the Democrat side in direction. It's just how fast do you get to utopian liberalism, which is big government socialism. On the Republican side, there is a legitimate debate between push-pull. How fast we get there, not how fast we get there, but should we get there and how do we get away from it? How do we, this isn't about managing the problem. This is about eliminating the crisis that we face. And populism populist nationalism, economic full participatory democracy in many ways pushes back on the attack of the institutions that a natural big government uh, uh, Goliath unleashes on the populace. In many ways, I think you can make an argument that uh, these populist sentiments may carry on uh, an anti-conservative traditional message But what we're talking about here is unifying different factions in preservation of institutions and preservation of the democracy of our republic as it is, if we can keep it. And so that's how we have to look at these discussions. Bureaucracies in Washington power grew. Government gained greater control of our society's total resources. The influence of civil society, families, neighborhoods, churches, and volunteer organizations diminished. Is it legal? Increasingly replaced with, is it right, as a standard of judgment. Corruption and crime became more commonplace and therefore tolerable. And news media steadily became more committed to serving the propaganda arm of power holders. Essentially, Roosevelt's system has metastasized into what we now know as big government socialism. The scale of growth of government from the pre-Roosevelt world to today can be clearly measured by the share of the, econo- of the economy taken up by government and by the shift in relative size of the local, state, and federal governments. In 1928, local governments were four times the size of state governments and twice the size of the federal government. Local governments made up 6.5% of gross domestic product. States made up 1.6%, and the federal government represented only 3.7%. By 2019, the federal government's 20.7% of the gross domestic product dwarfed states, which made up 9%, and all the local governments combined at 9.5%. In fact, Washington now also spends more money 
than any state and local governments combined. More astonishing, the changes in raw percentage of GDP understates the growth of government. In 2019 dollars, the GDP for 1928 was 1.4 trillion. We'll pick it up here. Um, the, the the red Chinese are trying to disrupt our our broadcast here, but that's okay. In fact, Washington now also spends more money than state and local governments combined. More astonishing, the changes in raw percentage of GDP understates the growth of government. In 2019 dollars, the GDP for 1928 was 1.4 trillion. In 2019, it was 24 trillion. So the federal government is taking a much bigger relative slice of a much bigger economy. Along with that spending, an even greater shift in regulatory power and bureaucratic oversight has naturally arisen. Washington mandates oversight and regulatory intervention represented an even greater shift than the growth of government suggests. Issues that in 1928 were clearly decided by local voters and elected officials or by local voluntary groups and organizations were by 2019 limited by the decrees of Washington bureaucrats who had never been in the towns and counties they were directing. Furthermore, citizens in 1928 could reach their local officials and force them to pay attention to local concerns. By 2019, the bureaucrats were so deeply entrenched in Washington that even House and Senate members found it impossible to bring their citizens' complaints and concerns to the system's decision makers. The natural bureaucracy is to become self-protective and to grow constantly without regard to productivity or effectiveness. Because bureaucracies focus on self-protection and defending the prerogatives and habits against outside supervision, they grow capable as technology and challenges evolve. In the Pentagon, the political appointees placed by the president are seen as the summer help. As a freshman member of Congress in 1979, I had a private conversation with a senior naval officer who enthusiastically and with self-satisfaction told me that President Jimmy Carter wanted to reduce the United States Navy to a North Atlantic taxi service. He bragged that senior naval officers had blocked that from happening. It hit me that while I agreed with the outcome, I was being told the senior naval bureaucracy had deliberately and methodically undermined the elected commander-in-chief. I was deeply disturbed. This was one of many conversations that prepared me for fully understanding and engaging with the civil service culture of blocking politicians from interfering, quote, with the judgment of career bureaucrats. Now, what does that remind you of, John? This is, he, he's, he's describing here the deep state. Right, yeah. And, and, what, and what he's also describing is what we have found out by example after example from Dr. Deborah Burks, whose recent book revealed that she and others on the COVID task force purposefully ignored the edicts of President Trump on certain policies about mask wearing and vaccination and social distancing and other things because they didn't agree with it. And now, of course, we find out that the CDC has released policies that said, hey, you know, we got it all wrong. In many ways, if you read between the lines, Trump was right, and the, bureauc the, bureauc the bureaucrats were wrong. 
regardless of of that whole situation, and there are others that mirror it that don't involve Trump, the fact of the matter is this is the bureaucrats are running the show, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Right. I mean, we have, you know, FBI executing raids on Mar-a-Lago or Mar-a-Lago, whatever, uh, you know, and one hand of the FBI doesn't know what the other hand is doing, you know, different offices are doing different things. It sounds like, uh, you know, one put a, a padlock on this door and said, okay, that's good enough. And then the next office comes in and breaks the padlock that the first group put on the door and says, well, you only had a padlock on the door. Um, it just goes on and on. But this COVID stuff was the best example. Uh, the lies that Fauci told, lies that Dr. Burke told. Uh, you know, I was reading that stuff online and I'm like, well, why are these people being arrested? They're allowed to brag about how they screwed the country up for two years almost. The argument will be from some that we need a professional bureaucratic state in order to insulate uh, the poison pill of politics from the good governance of the American people. Uh, And that these are professionals that are dedicated to public service and they know better and should at times resist political pressures to do things that run contrary to what they view as common sense or good or, or in the service of the people. But what I would say in counter to that is who elected them. I mean, at some point in time, elections matter. And if, and if things are happening that the people disagree with, uh, then they know who are accountable and they can take effective measures from there. Uh, at the ba- at the ballot box, you know we've seen already where uh, you know there are people saying, "Well, the, the government knows. Uh, you don't have to think. Just go on TV every day, and there's someone there from the CDC or the uh, infectious disease, uh, whatever, uh, to tell you what to do." Stop thinking for yourself. I've already heard that. Just do what the government says. And you can't. You're, you're an individual. Your body is different than mine and it's different from the next person. They, they can't come out with an overarching policy of what is good for everybody. And, you know, it, go ahead. The speaker Gingrich continues. A similar experience occurred when President George W. Bush brought in David Brailer to modernize the Department of Health and Human Services approach to health solutions. Brailer was a doctor and an entrepreneur in information technology who had pioneered breakthrough solutions in California. He was also a first-generation financial success with property in Napa Valley in Hawaii. He was a kind of brilliant, aggressive, highly educated person who could bring 20th century paper-based industrial model bureaucracies into the 21st century. Brailer first came to Washington to work as a volunteer at the Bush White House 
designing the National Health Information Technology Program. Then President Bush asked him to head up the office he had designed. Meanwhile, HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson had had great impact as governor of Wisconsin in developing innovations that still echo throughout our political system. He worked with Wisconsin State Representative Antoinette Polly Williams, a single mother who had been on welfare and sponsored the first school choice legislation in the United States passed in 1989. Thompson had also helped create profound reforms of the welfare system, injecting work requirements and pioneering ideas that would be incorporated in the 1996 welfare reform bill, which is still the largest conservative values reform in modern times. As an experienced reformer, Thompson was eager to work with Brailler in modernizing the use of information systems in healthcare. However, he was about to get a tough education in the difference between educating a relatively small state government in Madison, Wisconsin, and trying to move a gigantic bureaucracy in Washington. HHS spends more than the Department of Defense. To Mark Brailler, becoming National Health Information Technology Coordinator, Thompson hosted an astonishing innovations meeting at the Willard Hotel. Key members of Congress, industry, academia, and the federal bureaucracy were there. For two hours, people came up with good ideas for reform and modernization. When he got back to his office in the Hubert H. Humphrey building, Brailler was informed by staff that he had violated several laws involving open meetings, proper procedures, and making promises he could not procedurally make without going through elaborate and time-consuming bureaucratic processes. <clears throat> At the same time, Brailler went to his first day inside the federal bureaucracy. That afternoon, he called me and asked if he could come by immediately to discuss what, had he, what he had just experienced. Arriving as a well-meaning entrepreneur who was going to bring modern information technology to help patients and doctors with the health system, his first morning was spent with the counsel for HHS, who briefed him about all the legal limitations of his job. His entire morning was spent on hearing what he could not do. Brailler wondered if he should even stay, considering the limitations on his ability to innovate and the risks he would run if he aggressively tried to use his entrepreneurial leadership skills to change the bureaucracy. I sympathized with his frustrations, but urged him to stay and do all he could to move the machine as far as he could. He tried his best, but eventually moved back to San Francisco to make a lot of money in a venture capital system specializing in investing in the private sector for health innovations. The bureaucracy had, the bureaucracy had won again. Yeah, that's what I was getting ready to say. The, the, uh, the bureaucrats took away from the American people a better delivery system for healthcare and health assistance from the government, and it just in the name of keeping their own jobs, keeping their old-fashioned ways, not wanting to change, and and ran off a, an innovator who could have helped the American people and helped the government be more efficient. Go ahead. I mean, what more do you want me to say to that? In this in this small example, you know, there's a there is a victim of big government socialism. 
Yeah. They, they sent a message to him saying, hey, pal, I don't care who sent you here. I don't care what you think your mission is or what you view your authority as. It ain't happening. One hundred, man. One hundred percent. These kinds of stories happen every day throughout the federal government. President Harry Truman commented on the difficulties, even as even a president faced with changing things in government. As Jason Kelly noted in the magazine in September 2012, Harry Truman felt sorry for Dwight Eisenhower. If Truman merely, if Truman merely a failed haberdasher, after all, a hat salesman, bristled at the obstacles to his presidential authority, imagine how aggravated his successor, a former five-star general, would be. Tapping on his desk in the Oval Office, Truman remarked, he'll sit here and say, do this, do that, and nothing will happen. Poor Ike. It won't be a bit like the Army. A promotion to commander-in-chief, in Truman's estimation, would limit Eisenhower's power. His orders, delivered as an elected official, would lose the sir-yes-sir acceptance they received in the military. To hear Truman tell it, the president could do little more than implore. Quote, I sit here all day trying to persuade people to do things they ought to have the sense enough to do without me persuading them. That's all the power of the presidents amount to. Now, that's interesting because he followed a guy that harnessed presidential power at unprecedented levels to change the shape and scope and size of the federal government, to, you know, beyond anything that anyone had contemplated. Uh, so I think that might be a little bit more of Truman disappointed in his limited abilities and blaming the office and the constraints of the office. Uh, more than the reality of it. I, I believe that the presidency is extremely powerful. And if you have a good team and a good system uh, in spread out the bureaucracy, you can get it to move. As difficult as it is, um, you can get it to move in some ways. That's just my yeah, view. I, well, I just said in the margin, I kind of wrote, imagine how hard it must be today with the bureaucracy even bigger than it was in Truman's time and even less respect for the commander in chief position, you almost have to make a lot of heads roll uh, at that higher level, not necessarily the rank and file, but at the, the kind of middle management and up level to really get things moving forward in this country, I think. Uh, Gingrich continues in his book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. This is an old-fashioned book club here on uh, our podcast. If even a president finds the bureaucracy unimaginable, imagine the odds against a local citizen, the mayor of a small town, or even a governor taking on the federal bureaucrats. It is an extraordinarily difficult uphill challenge because the federal, state, and local bureaucracies have become so large and unionized, they have become resistant to change. The entire system has been growing more inefficient, ineffective, and in many ways, dishonest. The bureaucracies we have inherited represent 
an industrial form of machinistic organization. My favorite example is the Pentagon. This huge building was opened in 1943, so 26,000 people could use manual typewriters and carbon paper to manage a global war. Almost eight decades later, the manual typewriters and carbon paper have been replaced with laptops, iPads, and smartphones. Imagine what the information management potential of modern systems is compared to the carbon paper and manual typewriters they replaced. It must be on the order of a thousand to one. Yet, there are still roughly 27,000 people working at the Pentagon. The steady growth of bureaucracies combined with their declining adaptability and productivity should not be a surprise. More than 65 years ago, the natural tendency of bureaucracies to grow, protect themselves and decline in effectiveness had been described as an inevitable development. In 1955, the British naval historian Cyril Norcote Parkinson coined what became known as Parkinson's Law in an issue of The Economist. The law goes, work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. In a, in a BBC essay, Tiffany Wen suggested that Parkinson was trying to understand a different kind of inefficiency, the bureaucratization of the British Civil Service. She explained, in his original essay, he pointed out that although the number of Navy ships decreased by two-thirds and personnel by a third between 1914 and 1928, the number of bureaucrats had still ballooned by almost 6% a year. There were fewer people and less work to manage, but management was still expanding, and Parkinson argued that this was due to factors that were independent of naval operational needs. Parkinson pointed to two critical elements that led to bureaucratization, what he called the law of multiplication of subordinates, the tendency of managers to hire two or more subordinates to report to them so that neither is in direct competition with the manager themselves, and the fact that bureaucrats create work for other bureaucrats. This is make work. You know, dig a hole, and then the next guy comes in and fills it. I mean, yeah. that's what they're talking about here. They're, they're basically making work, like I've been saying. You know, they come up with work to justify their their value, to justify their job. Well, you need me because uh, I dug the hole and, and this guy filled it in. Now I got to dig another hole so he can fill that one in. You know, it just goes around in a circle and nothing gets done. When reported on a modern, modern non-governmental validation of Parkinson's law, one scholar who has taken a serious look at Parkinson's law is Stefan Thurner, a professor in science of complex systems at the Medical University of Vienna. Thurner says he became interested in the concept when the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Vienna split into its own independent university in 2004. Within a couple years, he says, the Medical University of Vienna went from being run by 15 people to 100, while the number of scientists stayed about the same. Quote, I wanted to understand what was going on there and why my bureaucratic burden did not diminish. On the contrary, it increased, he says. Companies typically start with a flat hierarchy, perhaps two engineers. As a company grows, they hire assistants who then get promoted and hire their own subordinates. Quote, 
a pyramid starts to grow. One might add artificial layers that serve no purpose other than introducing hierarchy that help you to promote people to please them and keep them motivated. When the pyramid gets very large and expensive, it might eat up all the company's profits. If the bureaucratic body is not just drastically reduced, at this stage, the company will die. Yet the government keeps on. Isn't that interesting? Of course, when the growing bureaucracy is taxpayer-funded, it does not die. It just demands more resources. The demand for more money from the taxpayer is even greater and more intense when the government bureaucracy has become unionized. The teachers' unions have recently been a case study of using their political power to demand salaries for teachers who refuse to teach and for keeping on the payroll teachers who have clearly failed to educate the young people to whom they are assigned. Just as bad as the resource consequences of growing bureaucracy, there are huge real-world consequences of growing bureaucratization. First is simply failure to succeed. Then, to cover up its failures, the system must lie to a larger and larger extent. As the lies compound and grow, corruption becomes more commonplace and easier to tolerate. The big government problem. That's the next section in this chapter. There are three recent case studies that reflect the scale of failure and dishonesty that is increasingly eroding the American system of achievement and replacing it with a system of underperformance, inaccuracy, and duplicity. First is the scale of theft that is being uncovered in the various government bailout efforts, particularly in the unemployment insurance programs created as a response to the government-imposed COVID-19 shutdowns. Estimates show that up to $400 billion of unemployment payments were fraudulently stolen by foreign criminal organizations, roughly half of all funds nationwide. In California alone, at least $20 billion was stolen from the state unemployment system, according to prosecutors. Initial estimates had been as high as $32 billion. Apparently, a good bit of it was stolen by criminals who were already in prison and using the prison's computers to engage in identity theft. Their colleagues, their colleagues on the outside picked up the checks and deposited them. In Washington State, the state's auditor estimated the unemployment compensation system apparently lost more than $647 million to fraud. Much of the ill-gotten funds from Washington State reportedly went to Nigerians who have, been, who have become experts in stealing Americans' identities. Of course, that much stolen money means there were an enormous number of Americans willing to steal from their fellow countrymen. In Washington State, for example, one former Employment Security Department employee had been indicted for allegedly stealing $360,000. And, John, I think there was something that came out the other day in Ohio where a guy from Cleveland was uh, rung up for stealing about $500,000 worth of UI uh, benefits. Uh, Isn't that something the, the mess that this pandemic created? I know they had to basically overnight revamp the unemployment system because, excuse me, they shut down about 90% of the businesses in the country on a Sunday night, but gee, many Christmas that the, the emotional and mental scars that this pandemic has caused for a generation 
of kids and young adults uh, it was bad enough. And now the find we're, we're finding out so much, so much about the financial losses we've taken as a country and taxpayers. And I'm sure other countries have this problem too, but God damn, you know, why aren't Fauci and Burks and uh, all these other people that told Trump shut down the country or we're all going to die. Why aren't they held responsible? Why isn't, I mean, I'm sorry to say, why, why not Mike DeWine and Frank LaRose and, Amy Acton, who shut down an election 12 hours before it was supposed to start. Well, the election's the least of the worries right now. Uh, mostly Acton and DeWine, you know, they shut the state down. What, what are these people going to be held responsible? Well, you know, to that, I'll say this. There are others there. Well, I'm thinking about how I want to say it. There yeah. are other, <laughs> there are other she states. There are other states at that time, and I think of Wisconsin as one, who conducted their primary election, and 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 this is about the time, when I thought, I think we're being sold a bill of goods on the severity of this COVID nineteen pandemic, and and I have stated, over and over again that if I were governor of the state of Ohio and I was given the information that Mike DeWine and other governors were given under those circumstances at that time, I would have had a similar reaction. And as a matter of fact, so did Ron DeSantis and so did every governor and every politician in the country. They reacted the same way. Mike DeWine reacted a little bit quicker and was out in front of it a little better than others. Uh, but they all reacted the same way within about a four to seven day window. Yeah, as, I, thing, go ahead. Go ahead as, as things continued to go on, certain things popped up that raised questions about how accurate this health data really was. And when the state of Wisconsin decided to hold their primary and Ohio canceled, unconstitutionally, but under le legitimate reasons of public health emergency, at least legally, um, I began, you know, I saw something. I saw a crack in the institutional narrative. And Wisconsin held their primary and there wasn't this huge outbreak and a lot of people just didn't, you know, drop over dead with COVID. Right. So when you look at Ohio and what happened, specifically all I can say is we may not have been we may have been first going in but we were pretty close to first going out and I think Mike DeWine's leadership in the state the fact that he has a 16 point lead over the Democrat alternative right now attests to what I'm about to say is that Ohioans may have been very frustrated and rightfully so about what was happening going into this thing, but coming out of it, I think it was handled as as best as you could expect. Yeah, and you could say, you know, my my reaction there is 
a little bit of hindsight is 2020. Uh, I think, you know, about six months into this pandemic, we were starting to see that uh, if you weren't morbidly obese, if you weren't above the age of average life expectancy, you were not likely to be hospitalized, let alone die. Uh, and that's when restrictions could have been lifted. And you're right, Ohio was one of the first ones to start coming out of this. So I, I just think that when I read about Amy Acton, or not Amy Acton, pardon me, Dr. Burks, Debbie Burks, and Dr. Fauci's lies about all of this to keep us under lock and key, that upsets me. You know. Well, well, it gets to the the segment that, that we're in here in the book by Newt Gingrich, defeating big government socialism, uh, the big government problem. Mm. You know, Too Gingrich talks Gingrich talks about the the UI uh, fraud that occurred because of all of this. We're talking mm -hmm. about just the general uh, societal freedoms and ability to to travel and you know uh, being locked down. Uh, you know, regardless, you know, politicians across the country were used as useful idiots or pawns, depending on where you, your state you were in, by some kind of big government bureaucrat that um, refused to look at the science after a certain period of time. Uh, the science only went one way. Uh, it never went the other way, despite uh, people like Alex Berenson Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Naomi Wolf, and countless other medical professionals, not just political prognosticators, saying, hey, wait a minute here. Um, and so, all right, but, you know, it, this isn't a discussion on COVID. It's just a discussion on the influence of big government uh, contributing to the problem. Right. In whatever way you think it is. May, may, maybe you're somebody who's, you know, like all about it. You know, hey, the, you know. Whatever happened, happened. There's fallout, but um, we were, you know, it's okay. We were trying to protect people. Big government's not the problem here. Uh, what, what the problem is, is is people not trusting what institutions tell us, trusted institutions, institutions that have our best interests in mind. So, you know, why don't, you know, we talk about analytical thinking and making an argument. Well, think about that as you begin to hear what Speaker Gingrich is saying in this book. Right. The second case study is a disaster that was the Afghanistan conflict. There appears to have been right. Yeah, here we go. There appears to have been continuous dishonesty, disinformation, and cover-up in the 20 years of the Afghanistan campaign. It turns out that military leaders on the ground didn't have a mission or definition of success, and knew the campaign was doomed to fail. Yet rosy, hopeful reports continued coming to Washington from superiors, and the bloody war continued. In a stunning book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War, Craig Whitlock of the Washington Post uses the Department of Defense's own records of debriefing senior officials to outline at least 16 years in which the military and government systematically misled and at times outright lied to the American people. Your faith in the integrity and capability of the Pentagon will be shattered by its own internal interviews and documents. 
You will also better understand the incompetence of the actual withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. This is the most dangerous scandal we face because of bureaucratized self-deluding defense system, which focuses more on wokeness than military competence, will simply collapse when faced with a serious opponent such as the Chinese communists or a combined effort of other adversaries. You know, think Russia, okay? As one retired military leader with great credentials as a student of military history wrote me, we are in the process of creating the defeatist French generals of the 1920s and 1930s who had no hope of defeating the Germans in the 1940s. Boom. There's a hammer. We're creating our own defeat. The third case study is the extraordinary failure of the public health system in attempting to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. In many ways, this failure dwarfs the impact of theft from relief funds and even the lies about the war in Afghanistan. More than two years after the first U.S. infection, there are still shortages of tests and vaccines, and there are still no permanent plan for overcoming or coping with the virus. If the United States was not mirrored in soap opera politics, a pathetically narrow and partisan-focused majority in Congress, and a news media that wants to protect its allies against critiques, we would currently be having astonishingly congressional astonishing congressional and media investigations into the scale of incompetence, dishonesty, and petty self-interest that made the response to the COVID-19 pandemic so much worse than it should have been. And that right there, you know, people will say that's hyperboil and demo, demog, uh, you know, demagoguery, but the CDC itself basically said the response to the pandemic in various tweets and posts on social media was inadequate and not right. I mean, all you got to do is look at the record right now as, a, as we sit here in October of 2022. Consider two early failures of the public health bureaucracies in the emergence of COVID-19, the inability to track the spread of the disease and the inability to develop an inexpensive self-administered test that could have permeated the country. To understand the scale of failure, how about that, John? Wasn't that some, now think back to this. They they ginned up all of this hysteria, but they could never come up with a readily available test so people could tell if they were infected and what their symptoms were and what was actually going on. It was almost as if they didn't want us to accurately test. Oh, we, we'd hand out tests, we've got this, we've got that, but by and large, people never responded to the massive commitment by the government to set up testing sites and parking lots of pharmacies and grocery stores and everything that never materialized. It just all went dark and silent. Think about the mobile hospital unit Reverend Billy Graham's outfit set up in Central Park in New York during the height of this thing, uh, the humanitarian hospital that nobody used. They weren't using overflow hospital spaces. They weren't using tests. It was just as if everyone said, you know what? It's so effing crazy and bad. Just stay at home. 
and don't come out until we get a vaccine. And we don't even need to go into what <laughs> the kind of damage that vaccine has done oh, to a lot God. of people. Yeah, it seems like we got mixed messages from the experts. And, and, you know, they lay a lot of blame at the feet of Trump. And I don't even want to go into that argument. But when you're getting mixed messages from Fauci, like, oh, don't wear a mask, you know, and Dennis, wear a mask. And then, you know, two years later, we find out that, well, cloth masks were basically useless uh, after the CDC said, you know, oh, nurses, if we run out of uh, uh, PPE, wrap a bandana around your face. Uh, after, you know, all that shit, we find out that cloth masks were useless. The what I call doctor's masks were about 60% effective. And the only thing that was really effective was those super N95 respirator masks. And I didn't see anybody wearing one of those for the vast majority of the mask mandate period. You know, but we got mixed messages from, you know, the science himself, Dr. Fauci on things. That's just one small example. To understand the scale and failure in the public health system, first understand that there really isn't a public health system. There is a collection of local, state, and federal agencies with different scales of budget, expertise, and competence. Many operate on antiquated, totally obsolete models of gathering information by facts and routinely taking two weeks or longer to figure out what was going on two weeks earlier. At the heart of this mound of disconnected activities is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. This vast research system had grown from the Army's Office of Malaria Control in war areas during World War II. Prior to COVID-19 outbreak, CDC was widely regarded as the preeminent research and analysis center for new diseases in the world. Its work on everything from Ebola to measles was historic and set the global standard. Unfortunately, in the great tradition of bureaucracies, the CDC came to believe its own publicity and grew jealous about its power and status. Increasingly, if an idea came from outside the CDC, bureaucrats reacted like an immune system attacking a foreign disease. Furthermore, if the new ideas required fundamental change in how things were done, the self-satisfied CDC leaders shrugged them off as unnecessary. They had dealt with dozens of health crises around the world, and they did not need to rethink their protocols and procedures. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, a former CDC director whom I admire greatly and who was an impeccable uh, and who has an impeachable reputation as a medical expert reassured me that the chaotic, uncoordinated, slow, and clearly not standardized system of local public health officials doing their own things was the best we could do. The CDC was not really in the test inventing business, but it aggregated to itself developing the tests for COVID-19. Blood tests in America are dominated by a few giant corporations. The big government, big company alliances, 
have made testing at scale too difficult, expensive, and slow. Callista and I were in Italy at Christmas in 2021, and virtually every pharmacy had a real-time testing capability for about $8. In December, we had gone twice to an efficient one-day testing office in Arlington, Virginia, first to go to the Kennedy Center Honors and then to fly to Italy. In contrast to the test at virtually every pharmacy in Italy, here we had to make an appointment, show up on time, still wait in line, pay more than $8, and then wait overnight to get the results. From the day it was clear COVID-19 was a pandemic, anyone paying attention to Wuhan, China, or much of Europe by the end of February 2020, knew that we needed new thinking in systems. Unfortunately, the last few threatening potential pandemics had never materialized as real-world threats. There was considerable caution about panicking and a bias toward suggesting normalcy. I had done a podcast with Dr. Anthony Fauci in February 2020, and he clearly thought it was going to be manageable and not something that would jar our entire system. The number of different failures at the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, and the general public health environment should have led to in-depth, serious investigations with analysis of what went wrong and what needs to be fixed. As of this writing, none of that has taken place. And I'll just say, this is a big government problem. No one has been held accountable for this F-up. You know, it, it appears, and in some cases, you know, politically, it's okay if you happen to be a Republican. Um, people are not going to be held accountable uh, electorally uh, for the decisions that were made in 2020. Um, I, I can't point to maybe more than one or two, if I really thought about it, politicians who lost their jobs because of their COVID-19 policies. But yet we all recognize, and the CDC even recognizes recently, that it was an F-up of epic proportions. Our kids are messed up, our schools are screwed up, our economy's tanked, uh, but yet no one has been held politically accountable, and I doubt anyone will be held legally, criminally accountable uh, for what happens. But there needs to be at the, in January, when a new Congress takes hold, uh, congressional investigations into what was going on in these health agencies uh, during this pandemic and why the recommendations were made, when they were made, in the face, in some instances, of contradictory evidence. But yeah, this is the pro but this is the problem, John, of big government. Big government doesn't want to cede when they make a mistake. Yeah, why is that? That you know, when the 2008 collapse happened, uh, people at Enron were held accountable legally. Uh, people like Bernie Madoff were held legally accountable. But yet, we have people in government that are trusted to advise us on our health and other things and. They screw up, and it's like, oh, my bad, mulligan, do over. <laughs> I mean, there's no legal ramifications for 
government officials. Oh. These are such bureaucrats, pardon me. <clears throat> These are such powerful examples of how our bureaucracies are failing and weakening the nation that they are worth studying. We have seen hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars stolen. For two decades, we have seen a war dishonestly and incompetently led. A virus killed hundreds of thousands of Americans unnecessarily, and the entire economy was wrecked, especially for small businesses, by the government. The common thread with all these calam uh, calamities is bloated, ineffective bureaucracy. There should be a call for deep investigations that go into the root of the problem and help develop powerful reforms. Without this introspection and correction, these problems will compound and get much worse. At the present time, our news media political bureaucratic interest group system is simply incapable of dealing with reality and getting into an acceptably better future response. To survive, America must replace the systems that are failing. If we cannot break out from the straitjacket of 90 years of Rooseveltian bureaucratic and ideological evolution, we will find it impossible to compete with communist China. The result will be a Chinese-defined and dominated system within a generation, something we can already see as many of our biggest corporations kowtow to Beijing and say patently false things to placate the Chinese communist dictatorship. Because the threat to American freedom and safety is so great, the goals of the elections of 2022, 2024, and 2026 must be dramatically greater than normal. We must campaign to mobilize public support for the replacement of the entire system of Rooseveltarian government. In effect, we need ideas, not personalities, to change. Simply changing personalities within the current idea framework will at most only slow the rate of decay. I mean, he's talking about Trump right there. Newt Gingrich, right. Is, a, Newt Gingrich is a loyal Trump supporter, but he's talking about Trump right there. The ideas, not the personalities, need to change. So if the personality rubs you the wrong way, um, you need you, you need to you know uh, pull up your big boy pants. Yeah. Right. The, the president is not your pal, buddy. There are three possible outcomes for the elections of 2022, 2024, and 2026. Two of the three represent extraordinary dangers for America. Only one of these potential futures will enable America to survive the foreign and domestic threats to our freedom, prosperity, and safety and to thrive beyond them. A big government socialist comeback. The first disastrous outcome would be a big government socialistic comeback. This is unlikely, but possible. No matter how bad things seem to be now, there is always the possibility that the big government socialists who are masquerading as the current Democrat Party can make a comeback. The greatest recovery in modern times was President Harry Truman in 1948. Truman seemed so far behind that polling firms gave him the election to the Republican nominee, New York Governor Tom Dewey. In fact, most polling firms quit polling the presidential race in September because they were convinced Truman's position was hopeless. 
Given the state of the country and Joe Biden's approval ratings, the 2022 election appears to be strongly against big government socialists, unless something widely unexpected happens. However, an off-year election may or may not lead to a presidential victory in 2024. Huge Republican congressional victories in 1946, 1994, and 2010, when Republicans gained 55, 54, and 63 House seats, respectively, were immediately followed by Democrat presidential victories. And it works both ways. Democrat congressional victories in 1982 and 1986 did not lead to Democrat presidential victories in 1984 and 1988. No one should take for granted that President Biden's low ratings, Vice President Kamala Harris's even lower ratings, or the big government socialists' rampant failures will automatically lead to a Republican presidential victory in 2024. Political time moves fast. One year, even one weekend, can be a long time in politics. It is unlikely that big government socialists can recover from a presidential performance that is beginning to make President Carter's collapse look normal. Carter lost in 1980 to Ronald Reagan in the largest electoral defeat for an incumbent president in modern times. And the Democrats lost control of the Senate while Republicans gained 34 House seats. However, unlikely is not the same as impossible. Since eight years of Biden-appointed big government socialists to the bureaucracies and courts would be a disaster for America, this possibility must be carefully analyzed. The GOP-led American majority campaign activities in 2023 and 2024 must start with planning to keep the House and Senate while also developing a broad coalition of Americans extending far beyond the Republican base to ensure a GOP victory at every level in 2026. Instead of base mobilization campaigns, we need base broadening campaigns. I got to tell you, John, I don't think there's a more smarter paragraph than what I just read right there. Because, yes, we need a base broadening campaign. In my view, Trump represents that base broadening campaign because no Republican leader nationally or presidential nominee since maybe George Bush in 2004, and that was in the wake of a terrorist attack, has been able to broaden the Republican base and it, the Republican brand. But more importantly than that, where are our, and, and I know Gingrich is talking, Gingrich is almost saying here in this paragraph, he's accepting the fact that the Republicans are going to win the House and the Senate this November. I'm not convinced as much. I think we'll win the, the House. But by what majority? Maybe we win the Senate. Likely we'll win the Senate, but by what majority? But more importantly, where are our ideas? We're talking, we're reading Newt Gingrich's book here, Big John. And right. in 1994, by this point, he had the contract with America. He had written several books, several papers, several policy positions, researched and documented where the American people were on certain positions and put it forth before the electorate and had every candidate that was willing to sign all but a couple, Mitt Romney was one of them who didn't, who was running for Senate at the time in Massachusetts, um, came out and signed this declaration called the Contract with America, and it nationalized and put front and center the problems that the country was facing before average ordinary Americans, and look what happened. We gained 60 seats. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see that right now. 
I don't see that coming from Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy. I see two people who are trying to ride out a wave, not create a bigger wave, not harness a wave, but ride out a wave. I think they would be more happy if they came into Washington with 225 seats in the House and 51 seats in the Senate so they can maintain power versus presenting an agenda of solid conservative America first ideals to help set up Donald Trump in 2024 to build, you know, to take advantage of his coalition that he brings to the table in these important years by having uh, 250 plus members in the House, by having 54, 55 senators heading into 2024. So you could then be in a position to have even more members of the House or even close to 60 members in the Senate if you look at the map. I don't see that kind of long-term thing in coordination in today's Republican politics. What I see are people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy who don't want anything to do with Donald Trump and who want to consolidate their own power and I think are happy to ride out this uh, electoral cycle in a minimized Republican way uh, just so long as they have power and probably roll over in 2024 if Trump's the nominee and hope that he loses and regroup for 2026 and 2028 beyond. That's how sick and de decrepit uh, that some of these Washington politicians are. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You know, where is our plan for America? You can only run on, hey, we're not the Democrats for so long, and then you have to show the American people, well, this is what we're going to do. This is our plan, and it's got to be positive. It's got to be real inflation reduction uh, and things like that, you know, and they're, they're not doing it. A standard GOP mud fight. The second disastrous outcome would be a Republican victory that is entirely negative, myopically Republican and devoid of momentum or understanding of the scale of threats to America's future. Over the last few decades, Republicans have slowly lost their focus on creating better futures for Americans, the core of the contract with America. Well, what were we just talking about, John? Right. The program of successful reforms we passed in the 1990s. We have instead fallen into a habit of simply beating our opponents to stay in office. A former political director for the Republican National Committee, Gentry Collins, recently told me, Many Republicans have forgotten how to be for something and have defaulted to being against someone. This has made it easier for the media to attack us under to attack us and harder for us to attract new Americans to the party, including minority voters who culturally share many of our ideals. In fact, the extensive polling and focus groups we have undertaken in the American Majority Project clearly indicate that Latino American and Asian American voters are being driven away by the big government socialists in steadily growing numbers. Black women are moving toward Republicans over the issue of school choice, and black men are moving toward the Republicans in response to the Biden-led economic disaster because black men actually want to work and provide for their families not take a welfare check, which is what a lot of Democrats and white liberals think is their their role. But that's a pretty heavy topic. 
So an entirely negative, shallow Republican campaign victory is the most likely outcome, but it would have disastrous consequences for America. There is an anti-big government socialist tsunami building. Anyone paying attention can feel it. If the 2022 election is a referendum on inflation, lawless borders, failed COVID-19 policy, high energy prices, supply chain disruptions, weak foreign and national security policy, growing crime at home, out-of-control homelessness, rampant addiction, widespread mental health problems, and a host of other crises, the party in power is going to be punished by frustrated and disappointed voters. A simple big government socialism isn't working campaign is probably enough to win the 2022 election, but it's not enough to save the country. Winning the election because the party in power failed does not set the stage for the scale of change we need. It would be a continuation of running against Democrats rather than for our optimistic principles of freedom, prosperity, security, and hope, which are widely popular. There is a deep Republican institutional bias against trying to develop ideas-oriented campaigns. Most Republican consultants and committees are comfortable keeping score by simply winning. They have developed an instinct for opposition research and developing a not-them campaign system. The dominance of FDR's New Deal, big government model, makes it difficult to break through with new ideas and language outside the existing near-century-old system. For nine decades, politics and government have largely operated within the New Deal consensus. The largest changes were in President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, which involved even bigger bureaucracies, more government, and greater redistribution from the rich and middle classes to the poor. The intensity of the news media bias in favor of the dominant big government model and deep hostility to ideas that would break from it is also a tremendous hurdle. The modern news media grew up within the Roosevelt-Johnson consensus that big government and the redistribution of wealth are good. And the ideas and language of liberal Democrats are the natural solutions to America's problems. It is a lot harder to articulate and develop bold new solutions outside the big government consensus. So most of the news media is going to be hostile. It is much easier to get reporters and, and analysts to cover a negative campaign and communicate why the Democrats have flaws than it is to get them to communicate new ideas and new language that is challenging the liberal consensus. Recall the collapse of Barry Goldwater's 1964 effort to break out of the dominant model. It was shattering. Goldwater's fall seemed to be proof that timid ideas within the Roosevelt system were acceptable, but bold efforts to break out of big government would be assaulted by the media and punished by the public. Even President Reagan, arguably the best communicator as president since FDR, was careful to avoid or initiate ideas outside the consensus that had grown up. Reagan had been an FDR Democrat. As late as 1948, he was making commercials endorsing President Truman for re-election and Hubert Humphrey for the United States Senate. Reagan had a small set of big specific proposals. 
such as the three-year tax cuts to get the economy moving and methodical opposition to the Soviet Union in favor of freedom. He was cautious about a wide range of conservative proposals that he instituted, that he uh, intuited were not ready for prime time. When we developed the contract with America, we were careful to include only issues that had 70% or more approval. And we were determined to avoid issues that were strongly conservative, but would be assaulted by hostile media. So the evolution from FDR, New Deal model, to big government socialism model that now dominates the Democrat Party and the obvious decay of bureaucracies and policies that just don't work presents an opportunity to develop a new generation of ideas. However, the underlying habits and biases of nine decades of left-wing idea dominance means that most Republican candidates and consultants are not in the habit of competing at the idea level. They don't quite understand the late British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's rule that first you win the argument and then you win the vote. To win the argument, you must have a positive idea to advocate. That is a big jump from the traditional Republican campaign, which focuses on winning the attack. Developing ideas requires candidate-centered campaigns because the candidate must understand what they stand for and must be prepared to, prepared to cheerfully defend their ideas against opposition attacks, hostile news media, and citizens who may disagree with them. By contrast, a consultant-centric system inherently has a bias for attacking the opponent, minimizing the risk of public debate and keeping the other side on the defense. The result is the consultant's candidate may win, but voters don't really know much about them. Importantly, their candidate hasn't been forced to think hard enough about his or her positions to successfully fight for them in Congress. That's a loaded paragraph. I mean, that right there may be a supportive um, thesis paragraph in the whole damn book. And it highlights some frustrations that I've had with the consultant class, uh, not just in Republican politics, but in politics itself. And this is this isn't about ideas promotion. You know, this is just, you know, uh, don't screw up and win in November. Yeah, this is a whole a word that, that came out, I don't know, a few years into my political career. And that was electability. Does somebody have the right look? the right uh, persona, you know, that's all well and good if you're just trying to win an election or two, but that's not leadership. That's not what Newt is saying here, idea-based campaigning uh, and being successful once you get to Congress. That's just winning an election. And we see in someone like AOC what happens when someone is basically recruited by a casting call and said, well, you have the look, we'll smarten you up later to how things work, but let's just win the election. And both sides do this. Developing ideas takes time. It also requires strategic discipline to communicate and defend proposals. A negative attack campaign simply doesn't. 
Attack campaigns are inherently tactical and opportunistic. Idea campaigns are inherently strategic and require staying on message. An amazing example, example of strategic development of ideas is Reagan's brilliant October 1964 nationally televised speech for Goldwater called A Time for Choosing. When you read this speech, you realize you are encountering most of the ideas on which Reagan would focus his presidency 16 years later. A practical outcome, we were able to pass welfare reform in 1996 because Reagan had proposed it in his first gubernatorial race in 1965. Welfare reform was an idea that had been gaining, that had been uh, germinating for 30 years and had grown steadily more popular. Despite the difficulties inherent in a positive idea-oriented campaign, it is the only way to really move the nation decisively. If you win a clearly negative campaign, you have not built popular support for anything. And this is what consultants do. You know, this has been the consultant game for much of the last quarter centuries to win a negative campaign. Uh, people say they are turned off by negative campaign ads, but the fact of the matter is it grabs, grabs their attention and people respond to it. And instead of, you know, doing the hard work to come up with ideas, to come up with a message and communicate those ideas, these uh, millionaire, multimillionaire, uh, consultants just take the easy way out and uh, skewer and barbecue the opposition instead of propping up their client. So I will continue. The public, your supporters, your allies in office, and even your own team will not really know what you are going to do if you run a negative campaign. This is the end of that paragraph. Speaker Gingrich continues. By contrast, if you win a positive ideas-oriented campaign, you have defended your ideas, learned from the popular reaction to them, let your allies in elected office know what you value, set the stage for positive action, and hopefully inspired like-minded leaders to come along. A 2022 campaign that avoids ideas and focuses on the negative Democrat performance will be a grave disservice to the country. And that's exactly where we're headed. I mean, at this point in time, we're coming up to Labor Day. There's been no, you know, consolidation of ideas from Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell about a legitimate policy-oriented Republican alternative. All we're talking about is we're not Joe Biden's 30% approval rating. Is that going to be enough to get the majorities in both houses of Congress? I think so, but it's not going to be enough to get the majorities that we need to actually block what Biden and his minions will propose come January of 2023 in an effective way. This is facts. Republicans can probably win that negative campaign, but they will simply have to set the stage for two more years of intense partisan bickering and personality attacks. And we know that they're not capable of doing that. They'll roll over. They've rolled over now. They've given Biden a couple of bipartisan victories, a few bipartisan victories when they shouldn't. They should have held out. Um, for, for more, and that would take spine, that would take commitment. But when you run a negative campaign, you're not offering anybody anything. And so you give yourself even less leeway and runway space during the governing mode of the American political process, which we all have to undergo at a certain point in time, you give yourself less wiggle room. I mean, you know, John, what are we? 
a bunch of river. You're a river rat from down there on the Ohio River, and I'm a you know hillbilly from you know Appalachia. What the hell do we know, right? But we can figure this out. Just takes common sense and a lot of hard work. Yep. The news media will focus on savaging the Republicans, and America will continue to decay. Meanwhile, the collapsing big government socialist system will continue to absorb resources and fail to develop a better American future. So what do we talk about here, the American majority? Only one outcome will meet and overcome the threats that endanger us. We need an informed, positive American campaign that reaches out to Republicans, independents, and Democrats who are worried about the country's future. And what I would say here, the only objection I would have for Gingrich in his phrase here, I think we need to drop the idea that we need to read it, reach out to Republicans, independents, and Democrats and just talk about reaching out to people, reaching out to average, ordinary Americans, black, white, male, female, whatever the hell you are. We don't care. Trans doesn't matter. We want we want a full participatory democracy in in a republican form. Me, republican form meaning, you know, the, the kind of system of government we have, not our partisan politics. We want full participation. A populist nationalist movement. Not necessarily focused on partisanship, but I digress. We need to reach everyone who does not believe that big government socialism and obsolete bureaucracies can develop a safe, prosperous, free future for all. We must build a massive American majority. And if you follow a populist outline and a populist agenda, even a, you know, a partisan agenda with conservative values, you'll get that massive American majority. You'll get it. We need a decisive victory against the ideas of big government socialism, paired with a program of reform and replacement powerful enough to enable America to defend itself and solve major domestic challenges for generations to come. And John, that right there is what everybody wants that has kids, grandkids, young people around them. They want to solve these domestic challenges for generations to come because they want America to be better now or to be better for them than what it is now. And right now, a lot of people don't feel that. Exactly right. I mean, we want to look out for the future, make sure that there's an America left for the next generation. Only... A fully developed positive American program that pledges to replace failed systems and reform salvageable ones can meet the real challenges. At the American Majority Project, we have an enormous amount of data that indicates a national consensus could be developed around big solutions and a vision for a better American future. The positive American campaign must start now. First, House and Senate Republicans should announce they favor focusing on the nation's needs over partisan wants. They must mean it. They must refuse to engage anything else, either in Congress or the media, that doesn't meet their standard. They should describe an American future, not just a Republican future. 
Incumbents and candidates should be encouraged to hold town hall meetings and listen for ideas. When he ran for Speaker of the Florida House, Marco Rubio got his members to hold idea raisers as well as fundraisers. At the meeting the elect that elected him Speaker for the next session, he held up a book with blank pages and challenged his colleagues to fill in the book with solutions from their constituents. This is a great model that could be adopted. In 2020, one of the keys to the House Republicans running 40 seats ahead of the, expe of the experts' predictions, they were supposed to lose 25 and ended up gaining 15, was leader Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America. It was a positive vision that gave House Republicans a better approach to reaching new voters and converting the undecided. I haven't even seen that. I mean, I, 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 even, I, I don't even remember that, but I, even, I haven't even seen that this year. And here we are almost at Labor Day. House and Senate Republicans should launch a series of ad hoc hearings on national issues, not partisan issues. There are a wide range of think tanks that have people developing positive solutions. They can hold hearings, publish papers, explaining and supporting reforms, and engage in positive public debate as the big government socialists try to defend their failing system and attack the new hopeful approaches. The Democrats, especially under Speaker Pelosi in the House, have been so mean-spirited, negative, and arrogant that it would be tempting to focus Republican time and energy on matching their partisan nastiness. That would be a historic mistake. I kind of feel though a little bit here. I, I need I need some I need I need some retaliation. I need some retribution. But I'll I'll default to uh, Speaker Gingrich. America faces many challenges as a country, and Americans face many challenges personally. They want leadership that is trying to solve their country's problems and give them the tools to have better chance of solving their own. They don't want to track political points. They want to live more successful lives. House Republicans should set a 10% rule for partisan-focused hearings. 90% of their time should, 90% of their time and effort should be focused on understanding, discovering, developing, and communicating solutions to America's problems. Even members of the minority can have a huge impact if they focus on big ideas and pursue them with cheerful persistence. I watched Jack Kemp steadily develop and implement supply-side eco economics, which led to, a, to powerful tax cuts that helped put millions of Americans to work. I saw Dick Armey develop the concept of a base-closing commission. In both cases, the idea leader was in the minority, and they were on the wrong committees for their ideas. Kemp didn't serve on Ways and Means, which was the committee dealing with taxes, and Army didn't serve on the Armed Services Committee, which was the legislative point of origin for the bill that implemented his idea. Their entrepreneurial drive and willingness to tirelessly remain focused carried them to victory despite the odds and the structural difficulties. In an open solutions-oriented American-majority-focused Republican Party, there will be plenty of opportunities for scores of energetic members to pick topics they care about and work to turn them into winning issues and positive legislative initiatives. A solution-oriented party also needs lots of product champions.
and must create space for many people to become stars in their own right. As soon as possible, Republicans should introduce the bills they believe would make America better. They should focus most of their time on explaining why their solutions will lead to a better American future. In the process of this dialogue, they will learn about things that need to be modified and omissions that need to be corrected. Developing new solutions is a process, and the first bold step often must be modified and improved until it is widely acceptable and practically implementable. This is how the legislative process is supposed to work. And I got to tell you, without getting into a lot of details here because we don't have time, th th this is the meatiest paragraph of the whole damn chapter. If you want to understand how the sausage is made and the right way to make that sausage and include people in the sausage-making process, just read the last paragraph that I read from Gingrich's book right here, right now. This, 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 this is the meat of the American system and of the legislative process. When Republicans attract independents and concerned Democrats to become an American majority, they should pass those bills. If Biden wants to veto them, that is his prerogative. He would then be shaping the agenda for the 2024 campaign around issues Republicans can defend and drawing a sharp contrast between his defense of failing big government socialism and new ideas that would improve people's lives and help America survive. Now, there would be a real argument for the American majority to win. Ultimately, it would be good for Republicans to adopt something similar to the contract with America in September 2022. Amen, but I don't see it coming. And again, in September 2024, these contracts need to have no more than 10 big, bold proposals around which a strong national majority can be rallied. There can be hundreds of useful bills developed and introduced, but the campaign should be focused on the biggest, most powerful, and most popular new proposals, and they should be passed first. This is the only way we can save the country, and we must do it. The next chapter, Chapter 3, in our old-fashioned book club where we read it all and talk about everything. What works? History, stability, and strength. John, I think Gingrich probably closed Chapter 2 off uh, in very strong form, and we should all go back and read those last few pages uh, if we really care about not just Republicans winning, but America winning. Right. This has definitely got to be... Uh, an America first election, not a Republican first election. It's got to be something that everybody can grasp and wrap their minds around, not just uh, a based election. You know, yeah, it's important to get the Republican base fired up and out there, but you also have to <clears throat> get non-Republicans, moderates, independents, just American people out there to vote and understand what you are trying to do. Well, I think this is an awesome book. Um, I need to now catch up and get through chapters three, four, and five before we start our book club again, our old-fashioned book club, where we read it all and let you decide. Um, we're not lecturing to people. We're 
commenting. Uh, so I say we give it a little bit here, not as long as what we did between the last time. Yeah. But let people uh, digest what we're reading here, but come back hardcore, strong into chapter three. This is a great book. It's an easy read. To be perfectly honest with you, if you had the time, and this isn't a difficult book where there's a lot of cross-references and citations and things that you have to check out. I mean, you know, what is it, like 230 pages or so? You really could read you really could read this book in a weekend or in a couple of days if you if you just spent the time at night to do it. Um and the thing about books like this is it is easy to read. It's a fast read if you have the time, but it requires you and affords you at the same time the ability to read it again. And I, and I want everyone to know, regardless of what we read and where you think we are coming from on something, you've got to read it, and you've got to take the time to read it again to really understand what we're talking about, or not what we're talking about, but what the author is talking about. You can't just sit here and read a book and say, hey, I got it done, I read it. You got to go back and read it again. And again, and again. And guess what? You got time. You have the ability. You have the human agency to do it. You all can comprehend this stuff. Who cares how many pages you read in a night? Are you understanding it? Are you comprehending it? Can you regurgitate it? Can you form an opinion? Can you make an argument one way or the other? And if the answer to those questions are no, that doesn't mean a forever no. It just means not yet. So read it again. Yeah, and there's I'm a not... lot of times when I'm looking through this book and I'll, I'll go through something and I'll stop and I'll go back and read, re-read the paragraph and make a note in the margins and things like that to, you know, just take it in and absorb what he's saying. And you don't have to absorb it all now, you know, make those notes like I have in this book. I've got little posted notes that I put inside of books. So when I run out of space in the margins, maybe in a year or two, I come back to it. but it's there for us. That's the beauty of books. There's value in radio. There's value in, in print, in print media. But there's something special and personal about a book that you can hold, that you can have, that you can own and allow your mind to tackle it. Never doubt your mental ability to comprehend anything. Pick the book up and own it. I don't care if you rent it from a library or whatever else. For however long it is you have it, own it. Let it consume you. 
become part of the book and the information, whatever it is that you're reading, until you are satisfied. Because there will be, as I have experienced, a intellectual and mental satisfaction, whatever it is you come across at the end of the day, you've got it. You understand it. No one is going to buffalo you on that topic. You're the expert. And you don't need college degrees, legal degrees, master's degrees, doctoral theses. All you have to do is read it and understand it. And if you don't understand it, then find a book club like what we're trying to do here. We'll talk it through with you. We'll figure it out. Own it. Consume it. And be proud of your abilities. And understand, maybe from time to time you'll be on the outside. But if you can defend your position and understand it, no one can take that education away from you. Now that's right. I mean, nobody can take education away from you. You know, knowledge is power. Right now, we need to be as knowledgeable as possible as Americans to get through to our friends and our neighbors to win that argument at the barber shop or the the coffee shop or wherever to get across to people with common sense that look there's a there's a better way that the government is not the answer and that you can depend on yourself and why we need less government not more government and what i want to see is people coming to me on the street saying yeah you know i read your silly book and i think you're full of crap and here's why bring it let's have an exchange Let's have a debate of ideas. As long as we respect each other and where we're coming from and have some kind of shared values, and I believe that liberals and conservatives and whatever do, bring your debate. Let's challenge each other. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, an open debate, open discussion the good old-fashioned way uh, is the best way to move America forward uh, for the future. Well, I think between our first segment and this one, we're at two hours, easy. Um, yeah. But again, and that was only one chapter, we'll come at this at some point. Uh, chapter three, what works, history, stability, and strength from former House Speaker Newt Gingrich's New York Times best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, and our um, unsolicited but energetic commentary as we read along. Yeah, this has been a, this is a very good book. I'm up to Chapter 8, 
and then I took a break also. And it just keeps getting better and better. So definitely worth uh, picking up and absorbing. So with that, unless you have any final thoughts. Sign off, man. We got it. All right, man. God bless everybody. God bless America. And pray for each other. And we'll see you next time on Panic Attack with Big John and another podcast book review. See you later, Doc. Take care, brother.